I invite you to take your Bibles. Okay, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn back with me this evening to Luke 18. We're not going to be here very long, in fact. Uh, It's a topical sermon this evening. Election biblically defined. Election biblically defined. So last week we spent our time together considering Jesus' admonition unto persevering prayer. And Jesus applied these words. As he did so, he said this in verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Jesus uses a word here, which is found only 24 times in our New Testament, but which has ushered in no end of controversy in the church today, the concept, the word, election. Election has become a very important and controversial topic in the church today because of the growing popularity of a branch of interpretation known as Reformed theology. Reformed theology is not explicitly synonymous with Calvinism, though oftentimes we use them interchangeably. However, they do share many of the same perspectives as it relates to the topic of salvation. And while there are many good Christians found throughout Reformed circles and in in the Reformed movement, as a whole, this movement deeply misunderstands the teaching of the Bible as it relates to the nature of the gospel, to the character of God as it relates to sovereignty, to the nature of man as it relates to free will. The things they teach are rooted in scriptural concepts and ideas, but they explore them out of context, and in doing so, they at best confuse the nature of the character of God. This morning, I preached a message on offenses against the truth, and I used two categories. One of those categories was novices. Those are believers who are misguided through some confusion, and then there are Uh, false teachers, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. These would be what I would define as novices. They are deeply misguided in regard to a certain aspect of biblical teaching, and that has led them into uh, vain and profane babblings, into questions that um, uh, don't need, into areas uh, of questioning that are um, not profitable, to say the least. At worst, at best, they confuse the nature and the character of God. They add confusion where there should be clarity. At worst, however, there are some that blaspheme his character. And I give you this spectrum of possibilities because, you know, let's always remember, people are so different, right? People are so different. They understand things differently. They have, everybody has a different reason for, 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 the theological terms they use or the way in which they view things. To say that everyone in any sort of movement threatens the character of God and his gospel is to impute motives and results that simply cannot be categorically claimed. It's an unfair judgment. That being said, as I mentioned, at best, the gospel and the character of God get muddied by this system, confused by this system of Reformed theology. To this end, at Legacy Baptist Church, we wholeheartedly reject it. And we teach against those elements sometimes present in its claims that most heavily contradict the Bible's presentation of free will, divine sovereignty, grace, election, predestination, foreknowledge, foreordination, and really the whole of salvation theology. At various times, we've considered elements of Bible's teaching on all of these issues. We've spoken a couple of times about election. We parked on it particularly in 1 Peter on our Tuesday night series. We have spoken as well concerning free will. We've talked about the nature of predestination. We've talked about the nature of atonement and it's, it, the complete nature of atonement. We have taught on the reality of safe, safekeeping in grace. Election is so helpful for us to understand our safekeeping in grace, what we also call eternal security. And today we're going to consider the doctrine of election. And I want to begin with our conclusion. May I do that? Something I mentioned last time, uh, simply in summary, as I preached on Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, is that whenever we see the concept of election come up in the Scriptures... 
when we consider the concept of election, we're never speaking of salvation. You never see election spoken of in the context of being saved, ever. We'll, we'll, we'll see that tonight. We always see it in the context of a purpose unto which somebody is brought into. It's not the cause of our safekeeping and grace. It's the result of our safekeeping and grace. Election is not the cause of our safekeeping and grace. It is the result of our safekeeping and grace. And I'm going to give an illustration, which I've given before. Some of you that have uh, listened to me for a while are probably familiar with it. But I'd like us to think for a moment about the United States Marine Corps. The United States Marine Corps has a slogan. They're still using it. They had walked away from it for a little while, but now they're using it again, I, re- I found out. A- and it's the few, the proud... The Marines, right? The few, the proud, the Marines. The Marines have uh, a, a exclusivity about them that they regard and they see themselves as the few and the proud. Now, as we think about a Marine, a Marine is one of the few and the proud, right? But what we cannot say, they are a part of an elect group with a particular purpose. They're the first in, last out. That's what Marines do. First in, last out. They're the few, the proud, the Marines. However, they were not always that, were they? They were not always a part of that elect group. They desired at some point to join that elect group, and then they had to go through a process called boot camp. And they had to go through the process of joining that elect group, and if they made it through the process, then they became one of the few and the proud. At that point, they were a Marine. They became one of the elect, but they were not always one of the few and the proud. They entered into that purpose. They entered into that position at some point, and after they entered in, they could rightly say, I am one of the few and the proud. I'm one of the chosen. And that's the idea. When we see election in Scripture, it's a very similar idea. We enter into our election. And when we enter into our election, that election is a purpose unto which we're called to fulfill. It's the concept we're going to consider. This message is not a refutation message in its essential form. False doctrine, I'm not going to spend the time to try to refute it. I'm going to talk to you about what's true, and then we'll let the truth refute the error on its own. So here's how I want to present this information today. In many ways, this information is better suited to a lecture hall than a pulpit, and I apologize for that. However, at the end, we will have a a bit of of an application. I struggled deeply with how best to present this. I rewrote the sermon in its entirety twice, or I wrote it twice. I didn't rewrite it twice. I wrote it in its entirety twice. I spent this afternoon tweaking it. I really want this to come across properly, but I'm not going to be able to do it entire justice in just this one night. There are elements that I'm not going to be able to address in their entirety. And if you're familiar with all of the arguments, then you might leave not fully satisfied with everything because I'm not going to, I can't give you everything tonight. And I'm not going to start a mini-series on it. However, I, what I am going to do, and this is, the, the, this is the, the core principle, I'm going to teach you what election is according to the Bible tonight. And then from there, it, we, can, we can grow the concept, right? You can take what election is and then you can start to fan out into the other elements of the argument, but from the proper foundation, and, and they'll take care of themselves. So here's how we're going to do this today. The word elect in the Bible simply means to be selected or chosen, or selected, chosen. Uh, it, it speaks of picking out, it speaks of choosing for oneself. The word makes no claims or assertions as to the what of election. We'll answer the question unto what we are elected later in our service. That's where the rubber will meet the road. But what is most important about the concept of election, and one which we must strongly and firmly establish if we're going to understand it properly, is to understand two things about election. Number one, election does not, in the scriptures, ever compete with free will. They're not competing topics. To say that something uh, is elected does not mean that they did not have a choice in the matter. And we'll see that with all of the the election examples this evening. Just because a person has been chosen does not mean he had no part in the process. Second, election does not imply preordination. Just because a person is part of an elect group, it does not mean that he was always part of that group, right? Right? The Marine was not always a Marine just because he became part of it. 
And it does not mean that becoming one of the elect was inevitable. If the Marine fails out of boot camp, he's out. He doesn't get to become a, one of the few in the chosen, right? And we're, we'll find tonight that in two of our examples, one of an individual man, another of a group, they actually failed out of their election. They were elect and they failed at their election. King Saul and the nation of Israel, both of whom failed at their election. They failed at their elected purpose. To understand this, we consider a portion of the 13 times the word comes up, excuse me, the 23 times the word comes up in the Old Testament. This will set the foundation for election as we should understand it in the New Testament. Seeing that the Old Testament is the foundation for New Testament doctrine and teaching. When we seek to establish a systematic doctrine in the Bible, we trace the concept through the Bible and so attempt to establish a trend so that we can understand what it means. We do so by looking at their wor at words in their biblical context. Now, on the back end, in my study, this is what I do. I go to each passage of Scripture where this comes up. I study it. I look at the context. I compare Scripture with Scripture. And I come to a general conclusion that is biblically sound. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to get into the Greek and Hebrew this evening. I've given you the Greek and the Hebrew here on this slide, but I'm not going to get into it this evening in particular. But what I am going to do is I'm going to take you to verses and passages where we see this word come up. There are many people that are elect, chosen, anointed in the scripture where this word is not used. I can't talk to th about everyone tonight, so I'm just going to go to some of them. And as I do so, we're going to put together a trend. We're going to see the bit. We're going to start building a biblical concept, foundation, and then build upon it until we have created what is a good understanding of this word. So I'm going to be tracing three words this evening. The one in the Old Testament, a noun which means chosen or elect, describing the nature of a person, group, or thing. Two Greek words in the New Testament, an adjective meaning chosen or picked out or elect, and then a noun meaning selection or the art of picking out. I will actually reference one more passage with the verb form uh, this evening as well but just one of those. And as we get into the examples, it's important to note, as I mentioned, that we're not going to consider everyone. But we'll stick to where the word is used and Lord willing, we'll, we'll get a good idea. Final foundational element before we dig in. We're going to ask three questions in regard to each of the people or groups that we talk about with election. The questions are this, who or what is elect? What are the circumstances of the election? And then unto what are they elect? Unto what are they elect? Now, if we were to take election in its misinterpreted form, who or what is elect would be different people. What are the circumstances wouldn't matter. And unto what they are elect is always salvation. But what we'll find is that we're not going to be able to answer question number three with salvation once tonight. And that's going to help us here. So these are our three questions that many different people and groups are described in the Bible as being elect, we will find. We'll find as well that in each case, the condition of their election was a response of their will to the call of God to enter into that election. And then in each case, when they entered into that election, they were given a specific purpose for which to fulfill. And as we study it this evening, we do so with very typical assumptions in place. The assumptions are this. Number one, that God's word is true. Number two, that God wrote the Bible with the intent of being understood. Very important. We're not going to be reading between lines. We're not going to be adding assumptions. We're going to take the scriptures at face value, see what they say, trace it back to its root, and then understand it. That's what we're going to try to do this evening as best as we can with the help of the Spirit of God. And if this is true, then when we walk through the whole of scripture, the biblical concept of election should be generally self-evident to us. And I believe it will be. So let's walk through it. The first man we're going to consider, the first elect man, is Moses. And in Psalm 106, verse 23, we see this said about Moses. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath 
lest he should destroy them. So Moses is the first man we see. It's injected into Psalm 106, where it's speaking of Israel about to have been destroyed by the wrath of God for their wickedness before God in in the wilderness. And Moses standing in the gap, standing in the breach. Moses, his chosen. Moses is the one here who is his chosen. So the question is, when does Moses become chosen? Well, we can trace this. We can trace Moses' choosing back to a point. When was Moses chosen? As we consider the life of Moses, if we were to trace his life to a point in time where a choice was made, where God said, I'm choosing you, we trace it back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses in the burning bush, wouldn't we? Now, we can make assumptions. Aha, he was chosen. This is talking about him being chosen to salvation before the foundation of the world. Except that we're talking about the leader of a nation who was chosen unto a purpose. And Moses is called the chosen. And we can trace back to a time where he was chosen. So that's the most reasonable, immediate link, right? In Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we read this. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God calls Moses, says, go deliver my people from Egypt. I'm giving you a call. I have chosen you for a purpose. And this is the purpose. Bring my people out of Egypt. So we ask our questions. Who is elect? Well, Moses. He's a child of Israel, of this nation. What are the character or the circumstances of his election? Well, the Lord was looking for someone to lead his people out of Egypt. He approached Moses with a call to do so, giving him signs and assurances that God would be with him. Moses was very reluctant to do so, if you recall the story. He was reluctant to be the one. He was reluctant to be the chosen man. Finding excuse after after excuse as to why he would be a bad choice. God answers all of these concerns with demonstrations of his power. Moses relents, accepts, obeys, and becomes the man, right? He becomes the man to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Unto what was he elect? We just read it. Oops, excuse me. Uh, Unto what was he elect? Well, he was uh, elected to lead. We go back one slide. That thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That's his purpose. That's what he was chosen unto. That's what God chose Moses to do. He was chosen by God to stand before Pharaoh, to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. God gave Moses a position as deliverer so that he could fill a purpose to deliver the nation from bondage. Moses became God's chosen at that time, having accepted God's call at the burning bush. So that's Moses. We next come to Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 6, Let seven men of the sons... Be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. There's our word. And the king said, I will give them. This is actually David giving the sons of Saul to the people of Gibeah for Saul's evil in destroying people of Gibeah. And so Saul's seven sons were hanged for Saul's evil. And Saul is called here the Lord's chosen. David regularly called Saul the Lord's anointed. The same idea there. When was he chosen? We find that he was chosen in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 27. We'll read through uh, chapter 10, verse 1. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us, and he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee? What? Here's the purpose. To be captain over his inheritance. 
God had chosen Saul to be king. Why did David regularly call Saul the Lord's anointed? Why would David not touch Saul? David would not touch Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. That's the only reason. It wasn't because Saul himself was something special. It's because God had given Saul a position and a purpose to fill. It's because he was God's elect, his chosen elect unto a purpose. David as well was called God's chosen. Psalm 89 verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. And when does David become God's chosen? Can we trace David's choosing to a specific point in history? Well, we can. We can trace it back to 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, Then he sent, this would be Samuel, and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now here's what we're doing here, folks. As we are trying to establish an understanding of election, we are seeing this word chosen, chosen, chosen. And with each man that we're seeing this word chosen, we can trace that choosing back to a point where they made a choice, where God made a choice, Right? where there was a choice made, where they became God's chosen. We can trace it back to a point. And so as we're building an understanding, if you were just reading the Bible for the first time and you were trying to establish the concept of election, what would election mean to you? What would election mean to you? That's, that's what I want you to answer in your mind. That's what we're trying to establish here. What is the word of God itself teaching about election. What is the trend that we see? The people that are chosen have a calling. They accept that calling. They become God's chosen. Samuel, or Saul, I mentioned, rejected God's election, and that's why David was anointed, right? Because Saul failed. God had elected him to lead the nation, and he was rebellious, and so he failed, and so God said, I'm going to choose one of your neighbors who's better than you. And Saul lost his election and David took up the mantle of his election. So David became the elect instead of Saul. Saul lost his election. David gained an election. Keep building that definition in your mind. Let's answer the questions. Who or what is God's elect? Well, in this case, two men, Saul, then David. What are the conditions of the election? With Saul... The people demanded a king. They murmured. They had rejected God's leadership over them. So God gave them a king. He had, an, he had Saul anointed. Uh, uh, Samuel anointed Saul with oil. Saul is very reluctant. In fact, he was hiding among the stuff, right? During the, uh, no, the, during the period of, his, of the announcement of him as king, he was hiding from the people. But when the power of God is evidenced, he becomes quite zealous. And then he gets a little power hungry. David becomes... God's elect when Saul is rejected because of his rebellion. And so Saul is, loses his election. He loses his privilege. And David takes over as God's elect. David is then very patient, waiting many years for God to give him the kingdom as Saul finishes out his days. Unto what were they elected? Well, each man was elected to take on the responsibility of leading the nation, right? As king. Saul is given the election for as long as he fulfills his elected purpose, which is to lead the nation to God. When Saul fails at his elected purpose, he failed at God's election. God took his election away and he gave that election to David. David accepts God's call. David becomes God's new elect to lead the nation unto God, to lead the theocracy. One more individual I want us to consider before we move on to Israel in the national context. Isaiah 42, verse 1, we see this word again. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And here it is we find listed among God's elect to be Messiah. Jesus Christ himself. He's also called God's elect in Luke chapter 23, verse 35, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and verse 6. 
God in flesh, chapter, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 calls him Emmanuel, God with us, was and is God's elect. Chosen what? To bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Chosen, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, to save his people from their sins. You can't tell me that this election has to do with salvation of, of his soul. We're talking about Messiah here. It doesn't work. It breaks down. Except it doesn't break down because that doesn't even come up. You can't, you can't break down what hasn't been built up. When, Jesus, when did Jesus become elect? This is a unique one. Revelation 13.8 tells us this. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His purpose was settled before, we were, before man was even created. At the foundation of the world, Jesus' purpose was settled. And it wasn't to be saved. Right? It was to save mankind. He was God's elect, God's chosen to be slain. And he was chosen from the foundation of the world to be slain. He had a purpose. He was chosen for a purpose. He was designated for a purpose. Therefore, he was God's chosen. I wish there's so much we could go into with, with, with Messiah and election. We're not going to do it. I wish we could. We won't. But there's so much there. So let's ask the questions. Who or what is elect here? Messiah Literally meaning the anointed one, the chosen of God. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one, the, the chosen. He is the chosen one. He's the elect. What are the conditions of this election? The nation of Israel had never received the promises of the covenant which God had made with them, the Mosaic covenant. The whole world rested in darkness, separated from God through sin. The world needed a savior. So God called Jesus of Nazareth to go to the cross, to die on the cross, to be the atonement for our sin. And he had chosen Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, to do this before the foundation of the world. Unto what was he elect? Chosen to take away the sin of the world, to save the world from their sin, Elect to become the mediator of the new covenant. It's a purpose, folks. He was elect unto a purpose. As is every example we've seen thus far. A man enters into an election at a time unto a purpose. Let's talk about Israel. First Chronicles 16 verse 13 tells us Israel is an elect nation. O ye seed of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. There are many who would attempt to spiritualize this promise made to God, to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, saying that it was made only to a subset of the nation, true spiritual Israel, not national Israel. Two thoughts on this. First, remember our premise. We are going to read the Bible and interpret the Bible as if God intended it to be understood. The plain sense of the text is that God is speaking to the nation here. And if you trace God's message to Israel throughout the Old Testament, it's difficult to understand any other sense to be read. Second, even more compelling, is the fact that here and in so many places, both in God speaking to Israel as well as prophecies of the future, God doesn't use the name Israel. He uses the name Jacob. Think about this. Jacob is Israel's pre-covenant name, right? If we are going to talk about a nation, uh, a, a subset of the nation, just the believers of the nation, would God ever call them Jacob? If he was just talking to the believers? If he was just talking to the believers, wouldn't he use the covenant name of Israel? If we were, if, if the church takes the place of Israel, then in all of those places where the Bible talks about future events and it calls them Jacob, would God really call the church Jacob and not Israel if we were talking about just the believers, the, the, the believers in Israel? If you're not familiar with, with Reformed theology, maybe you're not getting me this evening. If you're familiar, then this, is gonna, then this is making sense. I apologize to those of you that don't get it. But the idea is, is simply this. God calls the nation Jacob. Jacob was the pre-covenant name of Israel. It's the blood name. And it's the blood name because he's speaking to the bloodline. So the nation of Israel is called God's chosen. Can we trace a time when Israel, can we trace back to a time when Israel was chosen? We can. We can. Very explicitly. Exodus 24, the Bible says this in verses 1 through 8. 
And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the blood of the covenant and read in the audience of the people and they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will, do, will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Exodus 24 comes right at the end of the enumeration of what we call the law of Moses. It began in Exodus 20 with what we call the Ten Commandments. And then it goes on in chapters 21, 22, and 23 with other promises of blessings and cursings to the nation. This was God's proposition to the people. He says, I've redeemed you and now I am proposing a covenant with you. Obey me and I'll bless you. Disobey me and I'll curse you. This is my proposition. The people had a choice whether to enter in or not. They had that choice. And it is here that they said, we will obey. What did they say? All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. We promise, we covenant with the Lord. And so what did Moses then do? He took the blood of the covenant and he sprinkled it on them. And when he sprinkled it on them, the covenant was ratified. The covenant was sealed. God would uphold his end. They had to uphold their end. This was the blood of the covenant. The people agreed. The nation entered into this covenant. But the question becomes, to what were they chosen? If, if our... Per, if, if, if our trend holds, then they had a purpose unto which they were a chosen people, right? They had a purpose unto which this covenant was directed. They were chosen for a purpose. Are they chosen for a purpose? Well, here's what we know. This was not the moment of their justification, was it? The Bible speaks of justification by faith alone, not of works. Certainly, if Romans and Galatians have anything to say, they have to say that a man is not justified by works, that a man is not justified by the law. So we know that the ratification of the law of Moses is not the moment of their justification. So if they haven't been chosen unto justification, then what is the purpose unto which they were chosen? Well, I mentioned that Exodus 24 is the point where they entered into the covenant. But at the very beginning, before the Ten Commandments were given... Notice what God said in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mount, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant. He said, I'm about to lay, lay out a covenant for you. I'm about to give you the conditions of the covenant. If you enter into the covenant and obey my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God tells them that his purpose is to make them the house of Jacob, the physical lineage of Jacob, a special people, a peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They would be made special to God so that the world would see them, right? What do priests do? They represent God. So that they would become a nation of representatives of God to the world. God was making them ambassadors. And God says, I'm going to make you ambassadors. And as you obey me, I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be good ambassadors of me. 
And if you disobey me, I'm going to curse you so that the world knows what happens when my ambassadors disobey me. And as we just read Exodus 24, in, in Exodus 24, we see that they agreed to this covenant. They entered in that if they will obey, then they will become this peculiar treasure, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. And that's going to lead us into our New Testament study. But before we do so, let's do a little bit of summary work. Let's a- answer our questions first of all. Number one, who or what is elect? Well, that's the nation of Israel, the bloodline of Jacob, right? He calls them Jacob, the bloodline of Jacob, those that came out of Egypt by a mighty hand. What are the circumstances of the election? God had promised to, pu- to fulfill God had promises to fulfill unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob. He sought for a people to represent him to the world. He chose this nation to do it. He chose this nation to be the nation through whom Messiah would come. And so he calls them out of Egypt and he gives them this calling. If you will enter into my covenant, then I will make you my people. And they accepted. And unto what were they elected? To be a kingdom of priests, to represent God to the world to show God's blessings for obedience, to be rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. So let's do a quick summary of what we've learned about election from the Old Testament. Number one, we've learned that election thus far has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. Election, Moses was elected to be a deliverer. Saul and David were elected to be kings. Messiah was elected to be a savior. Israel was elected to be a theocratic nation, a representative of God to the world. Not only is salvation never in view, but seeing as Messiah was one of the elect, salvation couldn't be in view with him. What was in view? Number two, election has everything to do with purpose. Every time I ask this question in an interactive environment in our church, Sunday school, Tuesday nights, I say, what is election speaking of? And everyone goes, purpose, because this is the point. Election is always about purpose. Moses was elect unto the purpose of delivering the nation out of Egypt. Saul and David were elected as, uh, for the purpose of leading the theocracy. Messiah was elected for the purpose of dying on the cross to save the world from their sins. Israel was elected for the purpose of rightly relating themselves to God so that the world could see what it means to be rightly related to God, to bring forth Messiah. One final point, then on to the New Testament. Three, notice again, people could fail at their election. Saul was elect, he failed. That's why David became elect. And more importantly to our point, Israel was elect and they failed at their election, which is what opened the door for the church to come in. You read about that in Romans chapter 11. I'm not going to be able to expound Romans 9, 10, 11 tonight. It's the gold passage for misinterpreting election. I know that in the scriptures. But we're not, we're not fighting a misinterpretation tonight. We're teaching the biblical truth. And if we establish the biblical truth, then Romans 9, 10, and 11 does not become hard anymore. It becomes fairly straightforward. So I, I don't need to necessarily spend my time on it, nor do I have the time. But before I get there, let's establish a few things about election as it carries over into the New Testament. Let me, for a moment, come out of simply defining biblical election and defend biblical election from false doctrine for a few moments. A good interpreter carries over an understanding of an Old Testament concept into the New Testament until such time as the New Testament changes his mind. So as we carry the concept of election from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we have established what we're thinking. We're thinking of purpose. Right? We're thinking of those that God has chosen unto a purpose. We're thinking of the fact that election is entered into by the will and can be lost by unfaithfulness. A good interpreter, a good interpreter will understand these things. This does not change in the New Testament. We mentioned already the word elect or chosen is used 24 times in the New Testament. Three of those times it speaks of Jesus, the elect Messiah, One of those times it speaks of angels, the elect angels. The other 20 times it's used where it speaks of humans other than Jesus, it is never once associated with redemption, only ever speaks of those who are redeemed. Not once is the term used to describe an unbeliever. Not once is it ever said that anyone has been chosen to be saved. Do the study and you'll see it to be true. 
The closest we come to such a concept, and I'm going to address it here tonight, is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Here we see that a group has been chosen before the foundation of the world. This group is described as us, which we would understand from Paul's writings to be believers, right? Believers. But notice what the text does not say. The Bible does not say, according as he hath chosen us to be in him before the foundation of the world. It doesn't say that, does it? According as he, as he hath chosen us to be in him. It doesn't say that. It says, according as, as he hath chosen us in him. There are two valid interpretations of this phrase. The first, we are chosen in him. So that those who are elect are elect because of their special relationship with Jesus. They are elect because they are in Christ. We are chosen in him. We are chosen because we're in him and he was chosen before the foundation of the world. So when we enter into him, if any man be in Christ at the moment of salvation, he's a new creature, right? So at the moment we enter into him, we are now chosen in him. We are elect in him before the foundation of the world because he was slain before the foundation of the world. So he and his plan and those who would be in him are reality before the foundation of the world. And then when we become part of the elect at salvation, then we are elect in him, elect into a purpose. Or the idea he has chosen us in him. He has chosen we who are in him us who are in him, to be elect unto a purpose. Either way we interpret it, we must understand this, that the thing under which we are chosen in verses 3 and 4 is not salvation. Paul is speaking to those who are already saved and telling them that they have been chosen, and notice what it says they've been chosen unto at the end of verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What does Paul go on to say in Ephesians? He goes on to say that there's coming a day when we will stand before God and when we stand before him, we'll be holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And why will we, we be holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight? We'll be that way because we've accepted Jesus Christ as our savior. So we are elect unto a purpose, unto a end. And that end is that we are holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be blameless. All who are in Christ are elect unto perfection. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are chosen to be perfected. And who's in Christ? Those who accept the gospel. And what will become of these whom, uh, of these whom we call the church? They will one day stand before God holy and without blame before Him in love. In other words, those who are saved are elect. That's what the Bible's saying here. There's no statement here about being elect unto salvation. If it said chosen to be in him, we'd have another conversation, but it doesn't say that. And the Greek doesn't say that either, by the way. The verse states that the thing unto which the readers are elect is not salvation, it's perfection. Right? And perfection is the end of salvation, not the beginning. Perfection is the end of salvation, not the beginning. And just to go a bit beyond the scope of this study for thoroughness, look at the next verse, Ephesians 1, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Once again, if you do the study on predestination, you'll find that predestination is always about a purpose, and the purpose unto which a person is predestinated is never salvation in the Bible. Notice what it says here. We are predestinated not unto salvation, but we are predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. You see, pastor, there it is. We're, we're, we're predestinated unto adoption. Isn't adoption salvation? It's not. I mean, it is in the sense that our salvation is yet future, but you aren't adopted the moment you're saved except positionally. Pastor, are you sure? When does adoption take place? 
Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, that we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But then Romans chapter 8, verse 23 tells us this. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, that's salvation, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Our adoption will officially take place at the moment of our resurrection. That's our adoption. Once again, we are predestinated not to the beginning of our salvation, but to the end of our salvation. The predestination, the election is the church. The church is like the Marines. They are the few and the proud. And you can get in it or you can stay out of it. And if you're in it, then you're a part of the elect. And you have all the privileges that come with being a part of the elect. If you're in it, then you're predestinated to be the first in and the last out if you're a Marine, right? And if you're in the church, then you're predestinated unto the adoption. You're predestinated unto holiness. You're predestinated unto blamelessness. But it's only because you've entered into the group. That's elect. That's what the Bible says. That's what we're seeing here. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says it. To that end, to be predestinated unto the adoption of children is, by the way, a really great verse about eternal security. If you've entered into the elect then the moment you enter into elect, you are predestinated to adoption. You are predestinated to holiness. You are elect to holiness. That is what you have been elected into. Great verse about that. I can't say I'm predestinated if I can fall out of the church, if I can fall out of Christ, can I? Then I'm not predestined. It's a great verse for eternal security. But the scope and the context extends only to those who are already in him. Already in him. Those who are a part of the church by salvation are chosen to be holy and without blame before him one day. Those who are part of the church by salvation are predestinated unto the adoption of children at the redemption of our bodies. And if you care to do the study, you'll find that the 20 verses, the 20 instances of election in the New Testament referring to humans other than Christ, every single one refers to the redeemed. We'll walk through many of them together. Let's go ahead and do that now. I'm not going to walk through all of them, but, and I'm not going to teach them in context. I apologize. Uh, we, we just, I mean, unless this were like a five-hour lecture series, it was just, it's not going to happen, right? So let's just walk through these and let's understand them in context. I love these first two. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, and Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. What does Jesus say here? For many are called, but few are chosen. Not everyone who's called becomes one of the elect. If election was from eternity past, and dealt with salvation, why would anyone be called that wasn't also elect? But if the election had something to do with our will and could be entered into, then these verses make sense. Consider also three more in Matthew, all in chapter 24, which is, is Jesus speaking about the end times. Verse 20, Matthew 24, 22, and except those days should be shortened, there should, be no, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days should be shortened. Verse 24, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive even the very elect. And then verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end, of, one end of heaven to the other. Notice that in each of these cases, the elect are already with little controversy those that follow, those that know God. We'll skip the occurrences of Mark and Luke as they repeat much of what Jesus taught in Matthew. Take note that the book of John, which is the book that is the most clarifying about what it means to be saved, never uses the word elect once. We jump to Romans chapter 8. Verse 33, which asks this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. We are, we are God's elect. God has justified us. No one can charge us with anything. Already, someone already in, in Christ, right? Romans 16, verse 13, Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine, a brother in Christ. Colossians three twelve. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, those that are already in, right? Those that already have the election, holy and beloved bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Those already in the faith, folks, that's what we're seeing, right? The elect are always spoken of as those who are already in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus 
and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one, an, one before another, doing nothing by partiality. What differentiates an elect angel from a fallen angel? Presumably there was a time where the elect angel and the, or the fallen angel chose to follow Lucifer. It's a presumption that we piece together from various scriptures. And those that chose not to follow him became God's chosen unto the purpose of bringing glory to him and becoming a messenger to his people. Chosen unto a purpose. Chosen unto a purpose. 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, those already in Christ. The elect, those that have a purpose. Those that have a purpose. Remember, these aren't, each, each concept of election here, it's not speaking of the fact that they are saved. It's speaking of the fact that they have a purpose because they are saved. We'll see that... Uh, um, you know, I didn't put this one in my notes, but if you want to turn in Romans chapter 11. I wasn't going to go there, but I need to show you this one. You say, well, pastor, we're talking about salvation, right? Uh, or we're talking about election. And it seems as though election always has to do with salvation. Uh, well, remember that Jesus, three times it's used of Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to be saved, right? But then notice in chapter 11, when when. Paul is talking about Israel and he's, he's speaking of, of the purposes of God and he says that all Israel shall be saved at, uh, in the future. Chapter uh, 11, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Notice Jacob there. The non-covenantal name of God very important. I mean, of Israel, not of God. Um, For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Notice this. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. They're enemies of the gospel, but as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sake. How can they be enemies of the gospel and beloved by, by means of election? If election is salvation. Impossible. But if election is purpose... And God still has a purpose for Israel for which they have to fulfill. National Israel. And they still have an election that we read about way back in Exodus 24. And the church is a part of that. We'll, we'll talk about that. But is not, did, did not replace them as a nation. Then this verse makes sense. Because they are simultaneously enemies of the gospel and beloved according to God's election. Election and salvation are not synonymous in the New Testament, folks. Jesus was called elect three times in the New Testament. Election is not synonymous. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. Who has faith? Those that are already in. They have an election unto a purpose. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says in regard to believers, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ grace unto you and peace. I wanted to park here again as well, but we just don't have time. But notice what we see here. As he speaks of these believers who are elect, he says they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Not foreordination, but foreknowledge. God can know something without forcing it to happen, can't he? Elect according, that's another message, right? Foreknowledge is another message for another day. But they're elect according to God the Father's foreknowledge. And then notice that the whole, all the trinities invoked here. Then he's elect, we are elect according to the sanctification of the Spirit. The setting aside by the Spirit. That the Spirit has cleansed us. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, also, uh, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The Spirit of God baptizes us into Christ. We are sanctified by the Spirit of God. We're saved. That's the moment of salvation. We are elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. That is what... Qualifies us for the election. But notice here the purpose unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. The church, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God knew that Jesus would be slain from the foundation of the world. God knew that he would ordain this body called the church. God knew that the gospel would go forth into all the world. Elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. What qualifies us for election is the sanctification of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. Elect unto 
Because election always has to do with purpose, doesn't it? Obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Take a look at what, what, the other places where you see the concept of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not speaking of salvation. It's speaking of sanctification and obedience. It's found in 1 John. It's found in Hebrews. The second verse, 1 Peter 2, 4, again, we see this speaking of Jesus. I mentioned chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 6, speak of Jesus as the chosen of God. I skipped a few verses here. Feel free to look, up, look them up yourself if you need. But do you see what we're seeing in regard to the trend of election in the Bible? It's a condition into which we enter by choice as we respond to a call, and those who enter become a part of an election that has a purpose. So let's a- ask our questions, and then we're going we're gonna to bring this home. Who or what is elect? Well, the church is an elect body. The church is an elect body. Just like the Marines is an elect body. And when you join the Marines, you become one of the elect. The church is the elect body. And when we join the church, we become one of them. We become one of the elect. What are the circumstances of the election? Well, God has made provision to all who, uh, for salvation. He's provided salvation to all who will receive it through the blood of Jesus Christ. All who see their need and humble themselves to accept the gospel will be saved. At the moment of salvation, we're baptized by, uh, into Christ by the Holy Spirit and we become a part of this body called the church. The church is a body that is elect unto a purpose and we become a part of that purpose when we join the church at the moment of salvation as an exercise of our free will as unto the Lord through the hearing of the gospel. And unto what are we elected? Now let's answer this question as we bring it home. Remember, back in Exodus 19, we saw the elected purpose of Israel was to obey God, to keep God's covenant, and so to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a representative nation unto the world, a nation rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. Well, Israel failed at their purpose. Romans 11 describes it as the olive tree. And it describes Israel as an olive tree. It's the olive tree of God's election. It's the olive tree of God's purpose. And he says that he had to cast out the branches and graft in wild olives, which would be the church, into the olive tree of God's election. But that's not salvation. That's election. And election is not salvation. Election is purpose. And so Israel was removed from God's purpose and the church was placed into God's purpose because Israel failed at God's purpose. They were not rightly related to God, so they could not show the world how to be rightly related to God. And when Messiah came, they killed him, and they could not take their place as the representative body that God wanted so that the world, the Gentiles, could come unto their light. And so what happened? Well, Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He fulfilled the law in himself, which we could not fulfill. And then to clothe us us in his perfection so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God changed the plan here. He said, instead of having a physical nation made up of the members of one family, Israel, who I will ask to follow me in faith, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to ask people to follow me in faith. And whoever follows me in faith becomes a part of a new spiritual nation called the church. You see the difference? He called a physical nation and he said to the physical nation, I'm going to give you a purpose. And then desired that through that physical nation, they would come to a saving knowledge of God through faith. They were elect into the nation when they were born and circumcised. And yet that didn't save them. We know that but they had a purpose to fulfill. The nation failed. So God says, I'm going to raise up a new nation, but this nation is not going to be a nation by bloodline. It's going to be a nation by faith. So everybody who enters into this nation will enter in by faith. And when they accept the gospel, they'll become a part of this new nation, this new body called the church. Take, a note, take note of that highlighted piece here. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Why is that so important? This is not their salvation, is it? This is their purpose. Because when we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is what we read. Peter speaking to the church. 
But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That's exactly what he intended Israel to be, isn't it? But who, he, he's, not, he's not talking about our salvation here, is it? He's talking, about our, he's talking about the church, the body. He's talking about what we are because we are in Christ. And notice, once again, where we see election, we always see purpose. Do we see purpose here? That ye should, there's purpose, show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you joined an elect group of people called the church, an elect nation with an elected purpose. And that elected purpose is that this group called the church, no matter how small, no matter how big, is elected to show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness unto His marvelous light. We're to be the beacon on the hill. We're to be rightly related to God so that we can show the world how to be rightly related to God. This is our purpose. We are called. We are elect. The church is elect. And so if you are a part of God's church by salvation, you are one of his elect and you are elect to show forth his praises, to be a testimony to the world of his amazing grace, to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of this world filled with those who don't know him. You're to be uh, experiencing all the blessings of God, all of the spiritual blessings that He has secured. You're to be emanating with the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance so that others look at you and they say there's something different about you than there is about me and how can I get what you have? And then you can tell them the gospel and you can show them how to have the peace of God in their hearts. Our purpose is to be an accurate representation of God to those who don't know God. Our purpose is to show what it means to be a follower of Christ, to show its holiness, to show its love, to show its joy, to show its peace. We are the people of God. We have obtained mercy, but we have obtained that mercy for a purpose, folks. And the minute we joined the church, we became a part of that purpose. So Peter exhorts us in verses 11 and 12, and this is where we'll end this evening. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, because you're a part of this elect group, because you have a purpose to show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Have your conversation, that means the things that you do, your actions, your testimony, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. This, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are in Christ, this is why you exist. This is your election. Your election was not fulfilled at salvation. Your election began at salvation. This is your election This is what you were chosen to do. You are the chosen of God. You've been chosen because you're a part of the church which has been chosen. You've been chosen to represent Him to the world. It's your election. It's your inheritance. It's your calling. You're called to live outside this world, to reject the lusts of this world which war against the soul, to live as strangers and pilgrims on this earth, in honesty among unbelievers, that on the day of Christ, they will glorify God through you. So, it's been a teachy lesson. It's been a teachy sermon. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Not having to do with our election questions this evening. Question number one. How are you doing at your election this evening? If you are a part of the, the elect, the chosen of God by nature of your relationship to God through your salvation? Are you abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul? This is your election. Are you living a godly testimony before the world? This is your election. Are you showing forth God's praises? This is your election. Quite literally, this is what the church exists to do. We are an elect body of believers 
We are an elect group called out of this world by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we've been called out of this world to do what Israel did not. To be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. How are you doing this evening? We're called to do in Christ what Israel never could do in the law. Their day is coming again, by the way. The church will be taken out of this world and God will renew his program with Israel. And they'll fulfill their election during the time that we call the millennial kingdom. They will be the kingdom of priests. They will be the holy nation. They will be the representatives of God to the world. It's coming. They'll fulfill their election. That's why they're enemies according to the gospel, but according to the election, they're beloved of God. Because their election has, it stands. Romans 11 would say, because the the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. When he gives something, he doesn't take it back. He's elected them. They will fulfill their purpose. But until that day, it's our time. It's our time. It's the church's time. It is our election. How are you doing this evening? You're elect. Are you living like it? Let's close in prayer.